Hello, I'm Matthew Burrett. And I'm Taylor Romans, and this is Hard Beeswax, Experiences in Waldorf Education. In this episode, we spoke with Carl Johnson, who was in his 35th year as a Waldorf educator. He has served as a class teacher, educational support specialist, outdoor educator, and pedagogical chair for several schools. An experienced mentor, consultant, and teacher trainer, Carl Johnson has mentored and trained hundreds of teachers at dozens of schools in the U.S. and internationally. We realize that we are just two individuals who are part of this global educational movement, and we want to be very clear that we are only speaking from our own experiences and from our own impressions. We do not presume to speak for the Waldorf movement as a whole. <laughs> so you're welcome to play with a piece of beeswax if you'd like. I'm warming one up in my pocket. Oh, oh so, the that's, pocket so that's trick. the secret. That's the way these master <laughs> teachers do yeah. things. <laughs> Actually, I used to put it on the radiator in the school. No. Like that. No. <laughs> and here all this time, we've been, you know, touting the benefits of working the beeswax with your hands and how, you know, only the cheaters put it under their arms. And here we have Carl Johnson confessing. <laughs> to heating the beeswax on the radiator. <laughs> well, thank you so much for being here with us, Carl. We really appreciate it. You've been a friend of many, many years and actually the person who hired me to the Santa Fe Waldorf School through the Wilderness Program. And I'm just so grateful that we have the opportunity to speak with you today here on, on Hard Beeswax. It's my pleasure. It's good to see you, Matthew. Good to see you both. Yeah, it's great to see you, Carl. And just to start off with, I have a a question, which is, what was your own experience of education as a kid? What was school like for you? Yeah, school was, um, I think as, as a child, I was a fairly dreamy child. I had a, a rich inner life, and I had a lot of imaginations going on. So somehow I did fairly well in school, but I, I, I'm not sure that I was always there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I do remember, I mean, I think it's a hallmark of, of all teachers that we remember not so much what they taught us, but we remember how, how they helped us feel, you know, how they... What was the mood of soul in their classroom? So I remember fondly Miss Day, my second grade teacher, and I remember uh, Mr. Long, and Miss Ferris was pretty pretty tough, but she was a good teacher. Um, and yeah, you remember those elementary school teachers because of of how they interacted with you. I remember Miss Wallenberg, my fourth grade teacher. She was very supportive of uh, me writing poetry, and that has become part of my life nice. as a poet. And uh, so I, many blessings to all, all my early elementary school teachers. Yeah. Because they, you know, all teachers work hard. And uh, teachers, especially now in the 21st century, they are my heroes because they're right on the front line with a lot of changes that are happening in the world right now. Yeah. So I'm uh, really um, 
very glad for my current service to be working with a lot of Waldorf schools and a lot of teachers and going around and supporting the teachers because right now teachers just need support. Mm -hmm. Post-COVID, there's just been uh, so many changes and so much stress and duress that people are under. So I go around and I do a lot of mentoring and faculty workshopping and uh, talks for communities. And so that's what I've been doing the past several years, really, the past 10, 10, 15 years. Mm -hmm. That's been my main my main service in the movement, and I've worked with about 70 Waldorf schools in wow. over six countries now. Wow. And hundreds of teachers and dozens of schools. And yeah. when did you when did you know or beca- did you have a, a moment where you knew that you were going to become a teacher, or how did you enter the teaching profession from, from you know, high school, college, or whatever path you took? Yeah, that's interesting. I... Um, I had actually been a uh, a longtime outdoor educator. I had been the director of some programs in Utah and in Wyoming and, and up in Alaska. And uh, that arena of outdoor education has actually been, I believe, an important arena of a lot of really good teachers in the Waldorf movement. People who have come from outdoor education, from nature education, have actually... Uh, come into the classroom from the great outdoors uh, to become very good teachers. And that was the case for me. Mm. Uh, I used to lead 30-day wilderness trips for young people. And uh, and that... That was with Knowles, is that correct? For the National Outdoor Leadership School yeah, and nice. later for Deer Hill Expeditions. And, yeah. Um, it actually did shape uh, a lot of my my passion for working with young people. And ultimately helped me found and direct the Santa Fe Waldorf High School Wilderness Experience Program that you and I collaborated on, Matthew, for (laughs) years. And then you later went on to direct it. Um, But that's what led me into education. And there was a time when I was finishing undergraduate school that I I actually thought that I would... uh, maybe go back up to Alaska and work with Native Alaskan youth and be an educator in one of the villages. And it just happened that um, I was at a potluck the last weeks of school. I was about to graduate. And someone said, oh, you should go check out this school in Durango, Colorado. They they're a really unique school, and they do maypole dancing. <laughs> That's about the only thing this person knew about it. But I, I have to really be so grateful for that faded moment, for that, uh, that, that person who is really just an associate, wasn't a close friend, but someone that I was chatting with at this potluck. And I, I sure enough, I, I got in contact with the school, and we talked for a while on the phone, and... They said, uh, well, at the end, they said, well, we'd, we'd like to have you come visit, but we want you to know we are a Waldorf school. Do you know anything about Waldorf schools? And I said, no, I didn't think so. And so I said, well, uh, I'll send you my resume. They said, we'll send you materials, some materials about us. And so they did. And when I received their materials, I looked it over and I realized I did know what this was about because I had had a very good friend in undergraduate school, Frank Pessler from 
Hanover, Germany. And he had all these different capacities. He was a, a scientist. He was studying plant science. He went, later went on to become a medical doctor. Um, but he was a musician. He spoke about five different languages. And he knit his own socks. And, <laughs> uh, he had all these interesting qualities. And we met in a, in a, in a semi-professional recorder ensemble and became good friends and did some adventuring together and some mountaineering together later up in Alaska. Um, but he had been a kindergarten through 12th grade Waldorf graduate at the Waldorf School in Hanover, Germany. Nice. And he had talked for all our friendship about this anthroposophical school he had gone to. Uh-huh. But he never really used the word Waldorf. And so when the school in Durango referred to themselves as the Waldorf School, I wasn't sure what they meant. But as soon as I read the materials, I recognized it as what my friend Frank had gone through. Uh-huh. So then I was able to go to Durango for the interview. And um, it, it, it was a faded moment because it just led me to a whole path of working in the worldwide Waldorf School movement. Yeah. Starting in that little school in Durango, Colorado. And uh, at one point in the interview, uh, Miriam Barton said, well, it says on your resume, you play recorder. And she reached into a drawer and pulled out a recorder. She said, play us some. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I played a few tunes for them. And because I, I could play pretty well, they were, they were duly impressed. And, and well, I, we, we do actually do have some recorders right here. <laughs> I, I have them right here in my hand, so maybe at the end we'll we'll play yeah. some recorder. Right. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Pulling out all the tricks. Yeah. So, and so then, from so you were living in Durango then for a while. That's the first school I taught at, and I had a wonderful small group. Uh, it was a combined class, second, third grade, and I was with them for uh, uh, about three years. But that group of students really taught me a lot. In fact, some of those students I'm still friends with, and a couple of them have become wilderness guides themselves, and they actually guided on some of the Santa Fe Waldorf High School wilderness experience trips, uh, Laurel Beth Barton and Michael Barton. Hmm. Uh, and they are wonderful, stalwart adults now in their in their 40s with their, their own families, and yeah, and one sees it again and again with the Waldorf graduates that they just have a certain uh, solidity. When you walk into a room, I can sometimes just tell that there's an adult, young adult here or there, and you can read there's something a little more uh, substantial about them. And if you start talking to them, then you realize what depth of capacities they have and how articulate they are and socially open and and yeah that's often the case with the especially as young people who have gone kindergarten through 12th grade mm. it's a wonderful thing yeah it's so unfortunate that uh, Matthew didn't actually go kindergarten through 12th grade <laughs> yes yes only first grade through 12th grade oh, that's right I'm, yeah. I'm not the real one here I've been hearing that from my sister <laughs> <laughs> but on to, you know, 
when you came in as a class teacher with a small group of students, did you begin actively going through teacher training at the time? Or were you drawing from your own study, from your own materials, from what was provided yeah, to you? That's an interesting question because um, I really just jumped in with both feet and then my training unfolded through the years, initially visiting a number of other teachers in other schools like Highland Hall in California mm -hmm. and up in Denver. Uh, and eventually I did start to take on a, a training. But I had some very fortunate situations that I had a lot of time with Eugene Schwartz back in the early days where he would come up to the Shining Mountain Waldorf School for uh, two or three weeks every summer for about three or four summers and uh, learned a lot from Eugene and then later actually did some co-teaching together at, at a conference up at the Deerhawk Expeditions um, base camp up in Mancus, Colorado, near Durango. For several years, we had teacher conferences there, summer intensives. And so that, um, that was very fortuitous for me. All the teachers that I worked with in the early days, you know, you, you learned a lot. I, I learned a lot from teachers from that earlier generation mm -hmm. that were really some of the very seasoned teachers still. And yeah. in many cases, they were the founders of some of the early schools. That's right. That's right. Here in the U.S. Yeah. yeah. So what, you know, what were you taking in and then bringing into the classroom? I mean, it strikes me that one of the most unique things about Waldorf pedagogy and curriculum in the grade school is that the curriculum really is quite specific in when things are taught and how they are taught. And whereas, you know, for myself as a high school teacher, it was, you know, kind of more suggestions of, hey, at the end of the day, you're teaching English and here are some indications, but you, we had a lot more freedom in material. And I wonder, you know, coming in as a new teacher were you reading books? Were you getting a packet every summer of saying, hey, here's what you're doing next year? <laughs> and, and, and what was that process like for you of kind of finding your way into not just teaching the young people in front of you, but being a Waldorf teacher to those young people mm -hmm. in front of you? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, uh, interestingly, speaking of resources, packets, in those days... Um, it was a totally different world than, than it is now. I look at all the published resources that mm -hmm. people have available to them. And then, of course, there's the Internet and, and Pinterest and so many avenues for people to gain ideas about board drawings or, or really any, any curriculum subject that they're going into that they're preparing for as a class teacher. In those days, it was really a lot of word-of-mouth transmission and a few faded blue mimeograph sheets. <laughs> I'm not sure if you two even know the technology of mimeographs before photocopies. Um, and it was, uh, it was pretty thin. So there was, there, was a lot of, there was a lot of coaching between you know, seasoned teachers to newer teachers. For myself, it was, it was a big journey of, of trying to read the book of the children in front of me and also take on the, the in-depth curriculum and view of human development that comes from Waldorf education. And as I worked 
more and more intensively and deep, deepening my understanding, everything that I encountered, the, the suggestions, as you say, Taylor, the indications from Dr. Steiner, the pedagogical um, indications were always so helpful because I would read things and I'd say, oh, is that so? And then I would test it out in the classroom and, and invariably it would be something very helpful and mm -hmm. thought-provoking mm -hmm. too. So for me, it was a long journey of many years. It's interesting for the new teachers because I work with so many new teachers now that um, a lot of times people get in and they do it because they have a good heart and they, they have a love of children and they have a love of humanity. They want to serve humanity. And so they get in, but a lot of times they get in over their head because they also jump in. They don't really know what they're doing yet. That was certainly the case for me and I think for every green teacher. Um, even though I had experiences as an outdoor educator, it's different being a classroom teacher. Mm. And it's different being a Waldorf classroom teacher where you are really trying to do justice to this amazing curriculum and the depth of the understanding of what's unfolding at every stage of the child's development. And so uh, new teachers, they're just trying to keep their head above water. Mm -hmm. And especially if you're a, a young parent or maybe a single parent with mm -hmm. children, it's a lot to juggle. And yeah. it's part of what I do with my workshops with teachers, uh, just trying to support them not only pedagogically, but also this idea of teacher self-care. Mm. And how do you find balance, that elusive aspect in Waldorf teaching, in all teaching, I think. But Waldorf teaching is, is something uh, very enhanced. But you're not you using know. mimeograph machines anymore, right? No, That's right. where the gnomes are blue. and. <laughs> <laughs> I, I really do wonder about that, though, Carl, because I... I was kind of a, a peripheral staff kid for part of my growing up, and I really remember the teachers, you know, you worked late every night. Your kids were always in aftercare. I mean, I remember the teacher's kids were always in aftercare, and it was, it really, as a child watching it, to me, almost like embodied martyrdom in a way. And I really wonder about that, that gesture, because it doesn't, you're right, it's not sustainable, and I don't think it's in any way what is actually at its core being asked of teachers. And yet I think it it can be easy to go there. Yeah, well, there's a lot, there's a lot to do, and it's, a, it's an amazing journey. I guess I could say right off the bat is that I got my, for myself, my true education came through being a Waldorf class teacher. Mm -hmm. That's when I really began to understand the world and, and relationships and uh, how things fit together and how everything is related. And so it's incredibly inspiring also. And when you see the growth of the children and you see them gaining more and more capacity and more uh, ability and, and when you see this dance of being a teacher and preparing, preparing deeply and then bringing something like a condensed, distilled jewel of preparation and you see that catch fire with them, you see that grow and spark 
and ignite a love of learning, that in itself is very gratifying and sustaining as a teacher. Mm-hmm. I know what you're saying. It's, it's, it's incredible. And I can look back at everything that I've done in my almost 40 years of being in Waldorf education. And sometimes I look back and it's like, how did I possibly do that? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I also know that um, I wasn't doing it alone. Mm-hmm. For one, I was doing it with colleagues yeah. and with the parent partners that are essential you know, if you really want to know the secret of the success of Waldorf education, the secret of the success of Waldorf education is when the parents and teachers are truly working together mm-hmm. in concert for the health and the well-being of the children. Mm. But then you also have a faculty group that hopefully is working together harmoniously and, and uh, diligently and forming academies of learning so that you can really understand what's unfolding at the different stages of child development and how the curriculum is meeting that. Um, And it's a lot of hours. It's a lot of dedication. And you have to be really dedicated as a teacher and you have to put in a lot of long hours. And it means time in the classroom on Sundays, putting up a board drawing and all that. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm not saying it's easy. Well, teaching teaching is hard. Teaching is challenging. But in the end, you start to gain more and more ability. And the other aspect that I've yet to mention is not only the parents, it's not only the teachers, it's really drawing from the wellspring of the depth of wisdom that lives in Waldorf education. And even further than that, it's really drawing on the spiritual world for partnership and guidance for one's work. Mm-hmm. That's the only way that I could see that I was able to do everything that I've done and everything that I still do now. Yeah. So if one asks to be a vessel for this work, the help will show up. And sometimes you might have very challenging uh, situations with this child or that child. And I always believe that if you if you make the divine supplication to ask, how can I change to help this child? Or how can I change to help this child? Not how can I fix this child, but how can I really show up, be present, and go through the changes that I might need to interact with this child differently? Uh, and it, it often is answered by some imagination or an inspiration or an intuition of what to do. Mm-hmm. And those things matter a great deal in yeah. terms of going through all the challenging challenges of Waldorf education, of being a Waldorf teacher. If, if you realize you can't do it alone and you really ask for that help, that help will come in, in the form of amazing ideas that then grow in your soul as generative thoughts and you realize what you, what you can do, what, what will be helpful. And, and you do it. So it's still at the heart of wildlife education, this, this deep understanding of the human being, but realizing the human being is body, soul, mind, and spirit. It's not just the intellect. It is the wholeness of the human being. So we talk often about the thinking and the feeling and the willing um, and how important it is to balance that for oneself 
So you stand as, as a balanced human being, and then we try to foster that in the children so they have those balanced abilities. There's a little saying that I like a lot about, uh, it, it encapsulates, I believe, the whole, the goals of Waldorf education. And the saying goes, what the heart says is good and true, the head can plan and the hands can do. And wouldn't that be nice if we could have the wisdom in our heart and be led by a knowing in our heart of the right course of action and then have the ability in our thinking to plan out a good plan and then have the, the strength of will to do it. Mm-hmm. What the heart says is good and true, the head can plan and the hands can do. And that last part is maybe one of the most important parts of all because yeah. if you don't have the, the volition, the strength of will to do it, I mean, how many of us know all kinds of um, people who have all kinds of grandiose ideas, but they never seem to come to anything because they don't have the strength of will? Or they're so buffeted about by their feelings that they they never get traction either because they're just always kind of blown by emotional yeah. winds. But if you have that balanced aspect, then then you can grow as a person throughout life. The other thing that I think is remarkable about Waldorf education is we definitely are developing skill development, but in a very unique way in the, in the youngest grades, we're really trying to keep the learning uh, very much connected to what lives in them as a six-and-a-half, seven-year-old as they're entering into first grade, that they we recognize that they are so imaginative that they actually think in, in pictures. So we teach them through so many stories and even the teaching of writing is connected with the, the, the story about the misty mountain and then the teacher has a, a big mountain, double peaked mountain on the top that looks like letter mm. and the king and i remember I had and the king that's right sword. yeah <laughs> yeah so that is so sound that kind of teaching have the children first be activated in their feeling life through the stories and through the imaginations and have these pictorial renderings and that's how language develops really mm-hmm. if you if you look at hieroglyphics or um, the original cuneiform writing it was all first picture writing and then it became the more stylized uh, letters and such but that's just one example where if you're very careful in recognizing what's unfolding for the child if you match that with your teaching efforts you can begin to unfold an understanding in this case of something very abstract like written language they can take it in first verbally and understand, and then they learn to to write, and they learn to read from their own handwriting. That's an example of something that's very age-appropriate for the children. Mm-hmm. But through the years, there's lots of skill development that occurs with the numbers, with numeracy and literacy. And then in Waldorf schools, it's actually very sophisticated math curriculum and science curriculum, and it comes at the right time as they grow into more capacities, like in the sixth grade, when they really have the capacity to understand cause and effect, then you bring in physics and you're, you're looking at 
a phenomenon of sound and light and heat and magnetism and they're ready for it and they can start to understand it. And what I was starting to say originally was in addition to the remarkable skill development that is in the Waldorf curriculum, the other overarching effort is always to be developing capacities. Mm-hmm. And that's a very wise way to work with young human beings. Because you realize if you if you awaken a capacity when they're young and you continue to cultivate it and practice it, that those capacities will grow and evolve throughout a person's entire lifetime. So a capacity like imagination or creativity or innovative problem solving or the ability to get along with others, mm-hmm. those capacities, once awakened and practiced, they will continue to grow and evolve a person who's has the opportunity to be creative when they're when they're six and seven, they become even more creative when they're 13 and 14 and when they're 21 and when they're 37 and when they're 56 and 69 years old because that's the, the marvel of capacities. They grow and evolve throughout a person's entire lifetime. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm really interested in... Um, you know, I think a characteristic of a grade school teacher, you know, I can't remember every lesson my class teacher teacher taught me, but I just remember his presence and and standing in front of the classroom. And you, you touched on that when you said, you know, if there's a challenging situation, you ask the question about what can I do differently or what can I do to meet, you know, this, this situation before me. And I think that's a real home, hallmark of a of a class teacher is they seem to be almost more, I mean, worthy of imitation, but like you want to, I remember feeling that I wanted to do, um, that I really wanted to, to be my best self for my class teacher because they Mm. were trying to be their highest self in a way. Mm. Mm. Nice. Yeah. Well, you're hitting on something really key and it's this idea that, um, it's not really even so much what we teach. Um, and the, the how of all that education is, is a marvelous and unique thing that every teacher has to bring forth out of their generative forces, even as they're trying to follow the incredible roadmap of the curriculum. But overarching all of that is really the teacher's efforts towards self-development. Who they're becoming is really the main lesson, the human becoming and how the teacher strives to keep developing themselves, that's a a foundational lesson for the children. Um, And the teacher who does strive to cultivate more teacherly presence and to show themselves as, as an upright, striving human being, as a representative of the noble human being, that's what the children need to see in the end, we're trying to build towards a more human future. Mm. And that has to be an interaction between a teacher and a group of children, and, and literally a teacher and a, and a child on a one-to-one basis. You know, education doesn't necessarily have to have a, a fancy facilities and, a, and beautiful campuses. 
Waldorf classrooms can be especially beautiful and aesthetic with all the natural materials and all. But truly, education could happen between a teacher and a group of children under a tree. And probably is happening right now somewhere like that, true education, because it's about this soul-to-soul transmission of, of wisdom and love and true human care. That's what matters the most of all. And as we build towards a more human future, if we can find ways to uh, keep in mind that we're un- unfolding the next level of human evolution in our work with the children. And when we talked about the challenges, all that's true, but in the end, the dedication to that ideal that we're trying to bring forth the capacities of the new generation, that's what also keeps people going as as teachers. I think all teachers, um, when they really look at themselves, they realize that they have that inner strength if if they can if they can draw on that in the hard times, that's that's going to get them through. But it matters a great deal if you also have a practice, a meditative practice where you're you're drawing from the wellspring of inspiration uh, for your service to the children and for the community. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'm so curious. You know, you've you've kind of touched in on the. You know, this this first grader, the thinking in pictures, could you speak a little bit about this eight-year journey and kind of what the transformation is? You know, we've, we've alluded to, hey, there are these seven-year cycles that we see in human development that, you know, the early childhood teacher is working very much in a different way than the grade school teacher, the class teacher, and then the high school teacher is working in a very different way than the grade school teacher in order to best work with the students in a way that is developmentally appropriate for them. And I think what what always strikes me in looking at the eight-year journey is that while there is in many ways maybe a similar developmental gesture, there is massive transformation between the first grader and the eighth grader. And and maybe can you speak a little <laughs> bit to developmentally, what does what are Steiner's thoughts on what is happening during that time and how does the curriculum match those changes? Hmm. Well it's it, it's definitely an unfolding uh, from those earliest years where the first grader is still you could say, in, in the realm of early childhood still, at least for that first year. Um, you know, prior to first grade, the early childhood teachers are really working out of the bodily coordination and you could say the, the, the willing development that the young child is going through with all the sensorial, motoric coordination and they are learning through the forces of imitation. And the, the, the early, while their early childhood teachers really truly strive to be worthy of imitation because they know that everything that they do is being picked up by the young children in the, in the preschool and the kindergarten. And that's an example of something that Dr. Steiner talked about 100 years plus, and now it's being borne out by modern empirical 
neurological science with the discovery of mirror neurons and how much the young child just absorbs everything around them. Well, it does change as they go up into the grade school years. There's a number of physiological changes. There's a lengthening of the limbs as they approach first grade. The, uh, the baby fat is, is uh, lost. The roundness in the face changes. And importantly, they have this change of teeth. And the change of teeth is an interesting marker, but it really has to do with a soul's spiritual transformation that's happening for the child. They actually have their physical corporality, and they have this life force, you could say, uh, as in the Asian cultures, they talk about the chi, the life force. Steiner referred to it as the etheric forces, and the etheric forces are are being used to grow the child and importantly to complete the organistic development of the child in those earliest years. And when that completion takes place around age six and a half, seven, uh, these life forces become so full and abundant, it, they actually reach a point where they sort of push the teeth right out of the head. It's not the, uh, it's like the leaves in the autumn, it's not the leaves just falling off the trees, it's the buds of the new growth that's actually pushing the leaves off so the, the next stage of growth and transformation can occur. And likewise with the child, it's a little bit like that, where these forces become so full and abundant that now they become free for something else. So what do they become free for? They become free for now schooled learning, mm -hmm. true school learning where they can sit in desk and they can have not only the class teacher, but other various subject teachers, the handwork teacher and the music teacher and uh, the games teacher and different adults that they're working with. But those forces, if they're treated carefully, those will still be allowed to grow and, and be robust and healthy. And the problem with a lot of mainstream education is they right away start to draw on the intellect and draw on those etheric forces in a way that later the child will actually feel that something has been used up, later being maybe not until about 12 years old, when they, when they start to hit the early stages of, of uh, adolescence and puberty, they, those forces, if they've been used up through teaching methods that uh, are drawing a lot for example, from the head, they won't be abundant and available to the child to get through those next stages of changes. And the child will often feel listless and school malaise. And, and that's what we try to avoid in Waldorf education we, by having a very enlivened education that's a lot of creativity and color and movement and painting and drawing and, and the arts being used every day as a way to enliven the education and to anchor the learning that they're doing. Mm. So the children make their own books and they draw the pictures from the stories they've heard and they write up the stories and they learn to, to write and, and they create these incredible books which at the earliest phases are very rudimentary. But if you look at some of the middle school main lesson books that they've created or physiology, or history, or um, later chemistry, or algebra, all these amazing subjects, 
they are incredible documents of their learning because they've, it's not that Waldorf schools are art schools, but because they're using this artistic approach as they practice day after day, week after week, month after month, they gain amazing capacity and they actually create these amazing main lesson books documenting their learning process. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's one aspect of the journey in the grades is they're, they're studying subjects uh, intensively for three or four weeks at a time in a block. Uh, and they're really immersed in this subject. And then they're creating these books. And it's not always that everything that's done is captured in the books. Maybe, let's say, later in eighth grade, they might be studying anatomy. They might get out clay and sculpt life-size replicas of a human femur in clay. Mm -hmm. That may be the work of the day. But every day they they have warm-up activities where they're singing and they're moving and they're speaking together. Uh, they're playing their recorders and their flutes. And literally they're, they're moving, singing, speaking, fluting, breathing together purposefully every day because that's what the teacher is doing consciously to prepare them for the lesson to, you could say, enliven them and even wake them up in some cases and get them ready for the lesson. And that breathing together really helps bring the class together so you have this group cohesion. And it's very helpful if a teacher knows how to guide uh, uh, and really lead a, a well-formed movement circle time. It, it can be do wonders to prepare the children. There can be a lot of active practice of stomping out their times tables and whatnot. And then from there, Usually there's a little bit of practice. Maybe there's some daily uh, mental math or some, some grammar practice that's just woven in as just quick practice. And then importantly, there's always this touching back on what was done the previous day. So there's always this review, this touching back on what was covered the day before. That's another example where modern neurological brain researchers saying that, well, you know, the more review, recall, recapitulation that actually develops capacities in the brain for future envisioning. Mm -hmm. And that's something that Dr. Steiner said 100 years ago plus, that always touch back on what you did the day before. And then from the review, then the teacher is prepared uh, to lead the children in anchoring this learning in their main lesson books with, with the drawings or diagrams or the writing. Uh, and again, at the earliest stages, it's rather rudimentary, but as they get older, they might even be writing a first-person narrative in sixth grade where they've heard about Hannibal crossing the Alps with the elephants, and now they actually are asked to create a, a name, a character, as one of the soldiers in Hannibal's army. <laughs> they, they describe going over the Alps, the snowy Alps with the elephants, yep. uh, and they're a way to attack Carthage's enemy, Rome. Yeah, yeah. I was Just, always a peasant. I was like, oh, I'm, I'm a poor peasant girl. And every single one of them. It's like, who is who is the most the the, uh, the the farthest away from royalty I can possibly imagine myself into? That's interesting. Yeah, I'm I'm wondering a little bit about the journey of the teacher through the eight years because it strikes me 
as a high school teacher teaching math and science, I had the luxury of 18 years of teaching the same subjects and deepening my le main lesson blocks. And it's just such a different gesture for a, a, a grade school teacher who maybe has been through the, the cycle once, but oftentimes hasn't. And it seems like a lot of preparation and a lot of, you know, lesson planning year after year for new subjects. T t talk about a little bit about your experience going through the grades that way. Yeah, well, that's, like I said earlier, it's, um, it is quite a journey. And for me, it really became an experience where I began to understand the world in much greater depth because of the journey of being a class teacher and taking on subjects that maybe uh, I only had briefly touched on in my own education. But, you know, you start teaching the children uh, to you teach them their letters and their numbers in the earliest grades. But then later you're teaching them inorganic chemistry and mm -hmm. physics and algebra. And mm -hmm. uh, it's incredibly growthful for a teacher to go through that journey and have to take on these subjects. And I, I, I know that many schools actually do have uh, like a middle school team. Some schools have gone to that, that sort of formation where there's some teachers who loop from maybe first through fifth mm. and other teachers who work six, seven, eight. But if you go through the entire curriculum a couple of times, that's uh, an amazing journey because of what you learn as a teacher and also what you see grow and change with the children who become adolescents and young people. And for me as a, as a class teacher, I'd say the closest, you know, as a male teacher, I think graduating the, the two classes that I had uh, graduated through eighth grade, that was like the closest that I'll ever come to giving birth because there's something that you've actually been all together in this process and then you come to this moment where you have to let them go mm -hmm. in mm. freedom into the world. Luckily, I was able to still be teaching at the high school level with my last class where I had uh, a lot of rich experiences, high school level in the wilderness experience program and in the jazz ensemble. So we had some extra years that were uh, bonus, mm -hmm. us, I guess. Mm -hmm. and uh, Groovy. Well, a lot of fun and uh, <laughs> a lot of adventure too. Yeah. Yep. I mean, you were part of the jazz ensemble for a while too, Matt. I was. Really? Are you going to tell him my nickname? Mr. Bones Burr. <laughs> no. Yeah, he was awesome on the trombone. Yep. Th those were some fun days. We That was the highlight of that jazz ensemble. Uh, was the real high point when we had all those really amazing musicians. Yeah, we You did. know, those students who had just gained so much musicality from kindergarten mm -hmm. onward, just hearing the kindergarten teachers sing and then learning the pentatonic flutes and and then all the singing and later recorders and everything they did, learning string instruments uh, or wind instruments. And then it really culminated in this amazing possibility in the high school jazz ensemble. Yep. Yeah, I think, I think it's so hard. I, I think that the, the music, the recitation, the, the ensemble singing, all of that is so rich. And it really, I think, takes... A particularly 
strong teacher to carry that through into high school, right, from the grades. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot yeah. of times, uh, you know, at the high school level, it's, it's hard to, to, to power through and, and maybe get some of that adolescent buy-in to some of those things. But when it's there, it's incredible. I mean, I, you know, I, we've talked a little bit about how just ensemble music has so much power in it. And absolutely, I was actually, one of my classmates came to visit. She uh, has a connection to the Llama Foundation up in Taos. And so she was going up there to stay. And she was with a friend who she's in a singing group with. And she said, oh, Taylor, you sing. Let's let's sing together. So Orin had gone to sleep and our living room was kind of dark and we're all sitting around and she's teaching and we're we're singing and we're in harmony. And my husband wasn't a Waldorf kid and he doesn't really sing, but we taught him a part too. And and <laughs> and John made this comment about singing together. And he was, you know, kind of saying like that is that is worship, right? That is um you know, that is about as, as spiritual as it gets, right? When it, right. <laughs> and, you know, and, and I think there's just such magic in that and the Absolutely. richness and it, and yeah. it shows up later in life when you least expect it. And, hmm. um, that yeah, I just, that is definitely one of those, I mean, maybe on the border between a capacity and a skill, right. Of musicality. <laughs> You know, there's maybe some capacity in it, but it also does require some skill. But again, just those seeds that are planted early on and right. and nurtured throughout the years. Yeah. And, you know, even when you're rolling your eyes in high school, you were still singing songs and rounds and harmonizing. Yeah. And then, you know, eventually then you're, you know, driving down the streets of West <laughs> Texas with your windows down singing country music. And then you come to your... <laughs> you know, your adult life and it, it comes back in all these unexpected ways. And I just, yeah, it's a beautiful thing. And sometimes there'd be moments just in the rehearsals where everything would come together <laughs> and something would be really magical, like you say. But often in the performance, you'd reach this elevated state where it would all come together, all the weeks of practice. And then you find yourself in the middle of this living experience of being in an ensemble, whether it's a, uh, the orchestra or a jazz ensemble or the choir. And that's what the students gain, this, mm -hmm. this experience of being in something truly alive that's been created by a community working towards a goal of a performance. And then there's this living thing that happens. That's just a, that's a great example of, of the potential of things that can happen in Waldorf performing arts, mm -hmm. whether it's music or your rhythmy or um, any of those performances that they work towards. And it's, it's, it's really, it's really a, a beautiful thing when you can have that heightened experience of being in a group where you're in this living sound of the music that you're creating. And how incredible that is for young people to have that maybe not just once, but maybe several times through their kindergarten through 12th grade experience, mm -hmm. if they're lucky to have the high school. And truly, I'll say the, the full flowering of all their education is in the high school. It's wonderful what's done in the kindergarten and in, in the early grades, but the education really culminates in those high school years. 
-hmm. And I was lucky to uh, be part of the high school and teach at the high school level. And I want to just come back um, just a little bit to what we were saying about the main lesson because after the children do their work uh, and whatever the work is of the day, working in the main lesson books or sculpting something in clay or painting the wildflowers in a fifth grade botany class or whatnot, then very importantly, the main lesson often will culminate, will conclude with the teacher then telling the children a good story. And that story, the story curriculum through the Waldorf curriculum is, is, is quite amazing what, what's brought for the children at every different age, grade level. But the fact that they're having their imaginations activated every day, day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, that alone is one of the most amazing capacities that they're gaining, this ability to have image production and not only a good story that's told, but these classic mythologies, these, this wisdom from the collective unconscious, and this, you could even say, moral development, where they hear the story of the hero, the hero or the heroine going into this perilous situation and Oh no, 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 oh, no, they did it. Oh no. And there's there's a challenge and there's maybe there's a triumph, but they have this emotional, you could say moral muscle that's being exercised as they're hearing the stories, in addition to the image making production, the, the imaginative capacity that they're gaining through it. It's it's an incredible aspect of the curriculum. And I would just say to teachers, it, it's, it's one of the most amazing things you will develop for yourself to take on the mantle of the storyteller, to take on that archetype of being the storyteller. And it is different if we truly work with the story, take it in, and tell the children the story as opposed to reading them a story. Mm-hmm. It's not the same. But mm-hmm. every good teacher who's striving to become a, wall, uh, a storyteller in the Waldorf schools, they really begin to see the images in front of them. But a really good storyteller actually then sees the images, pulls back the veil, steps into the story, and starts telling everything that's happening around them. Mm-hmm. And then something shifts in the room. There's this an imaginal field that's created. The children are in it, the teacher's in it, and there is a, an amazing possibilities that arise arise out of that, especially since they're experiencing it day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year. I think it is one of the fascinating pieces is that history is taught through storytelling and that in, you know, yes, there are bigger timelines that are at play. You are getting the classic information about the rise and fall of Rome, but so much of it is then almost like this immersive narrative as to what it would have been like to experience the technology that the Romans were bringing to, you know, city infrastructure. I re- I, it, it is such a unique facet of what it is like to gain information from a Waldorf teacher versus, you know, having information kind of 
already given to you already broken up. Right? Read, read chapter three and answer the questions at the end of the chapter. Yeah. Yeah. It's not it's not remotely the same. It's much more living soul to soul transmission. Mm-hmm. It's this oral tradition. Yeah. Uh, and there's just a lot of research how this is a potent method. This is neurologically potent for the children to hear these stories. In the beginning was the word. And when they when they take in these stories, they take in these images, they are taking in soul nourishment for themselves. And then when they sleep on it, and the next day they touch back on what they heard, it, it, it's a powerful sequence. It's a powerful pedagogical sequence. Um, so it's, it's one of the, the really rich aspects of, of being a class teacher is learning how to become, aspire to become a better storyteller. And it, it's a journey, um, mm-hmm. but the curriculum is well laid out. You have to make selections and you have to learn how to, to take the stories in and work with the images and then be able to tell it by heart. Mm-hmm. But that heart-to-heart transmission is, is really key. Well, there's one other aspect I think we maybe want to touch on. Um, there's so many things we could say about the class teacher journey. But one thing that's unique in the Waldorf schools is this idea of the festivals, where the seasons and the, the wheel of the year are marked through these beautiful festivals. And we're coming up close to the, the time of the Lantern Walk Festival. As we get into this dark time of year, um, we're soon to have the Lantern Walk, and then that's followed by the Advent Spiral, the Winter Spiral. It's these beautiful festivals of light uh, that occur as we get into this dark time of year. And there's a couple of things I was going to share about that because um, I have such fond memories of being in the festivals with my students, but also with my own children who were Waldorf um, lifers, K through 12. Uh, my daughter, Kirian Ilona, and my son, Creston Sky. Uh, so as parents, we got to experience these festivals. But as a class teacher, uh, it was always a lot to prepare for this lantern walk that happens in November. We're very close to that time. I just remember one year um, uh, in third grade, as the third grade class, that we would be the oldest grade in the in the Lantern Walk Festival. And so we were tasked with leading the whole community, the, the, the younger grades, and all the, the parents and the children and the siblings. And everyone would, would have been making these lanterns for a week or so, shaping them with tissue paper and whatnot, and then there'd be candles in them. And we often had, on the the back acres of the school at the Santa Fe Waldorf School, we would have a big bonfire where we would walk and we'd sing songs and we'd, we'd weave through the campus and then eventually we'd come around this big bonfire and we'd have hot cider and we'd just enjoy the evening and we'd sing some songs together and sometimes there'd be a story told. Um, and so it was a magical moment. Um, but I remember this third grade year where I was leading my group and leading the whole 
long line of uh, festival goers with their lanterns. And as we uh, went out on the, the big field towards the back acres, there's um, a number of trees. And I looked back and I could see the group was a long line. And I thought, oh, we have such a big group this year. We have to make a big circle around the bonfire so we can fit everyone into the bonfire and get everyone around the circle uh, and the warmth of the fire. Well, I, I knew in the back of my mind that there was a big arroyo or gully on the back acres of the property. But I, I had not remembered that in this deep gully, this arroyo, there were also these finger arroyos. They're very narrow. They were stretching off the main branch of the arroyo. And some of them were six, seven feet deep and only about uh, three feet wide across. <laughs> They're like these finger gullies <laughs> coming off the arroyo. So here we are at night and we're, you know, it's a starry sky and the group is holding their lanterns. Everyone's singing songs like, my lantern, my lantern. <laughs> and I'm trying to swing the group around these trees and get around the bonfire. And suddenly I took a step and I realized something was terribly wrong <laughs> because there was just air beneath my feet. And the next thing I knew, I just dropped like a stone into this little finger arroyo. Well, my third graders who were right behind me, they were like, oh, where'd Mr. Johnson go? Because I just disappeared. And they were saying, where'd, where'd Mr. Johnson go? Where'd he go? And meanwhile, I'm down at the bottom. I had just fallen and crumpled in the bottom of this gully. And my lantern is burning a hole in my jacket. And I'm trying to put out the fire. And they're, they're like, Where'd he go? Where'd he go? <laughs> so I, I reach up with my arms and I grab the edge of the of the earth at the top of this arroyo and I pull myself up and it's like a gopher's head sticking out of the ground. <laughs> There's Mr. Johnson! The children all pointed to me. So I put out the fire and pulled myself out of the arroyo and <laughs> somehow you know, picked up my crumpled lantern and tried to relight it. And then, meanwhile, the whole group is backing up behind us. And uh, so... We eventually got things back on track and led the whole group around the bonfire and started singing our songs, and, and uh, we had a lovely evening. But I always remember that, and as a class teacher, you just have to know that uh, expect the unexpected. Mm -hmm. That was not something I would have ever expected, to just step into the <laughs> void like that. But in a certain sense, you're always doing that as a class teacher. You're always taking this step where you're not sure what's going to happen. But uh, I wanted to share something that I wrote that's actually on my website. And if people would like to uh, have a copy of it, they can go to my website. It's www.carljohnsoneducator.com. And it's in the articles blog section of the website. But it's a piece that uh, people have enjoyed this time of year. It's called... Harvested Light, and I thought I'd just read this, it's short, but it talks about the magic of, of this particular festival, the, the Lantern Walk, but there's many festivals through the year with the Mayfairs and the different things that uh, happen that the children are led through in this wonderful season of the seasonal wheel of the year. 
So harvested light. When the days shorten and night begins to slide over the landscape like a dark blanket, the children prepare their lanterns. Many days are spent creating these vessels of light, glue and tissues, staples and poster board, all manner of materials have been used to fasten these lanterns. While working, the children learn songs and they hear tale of autumn winds and tumbling leaves. Autumn is surely here. Blue skies and cool, crisp nights. Jack Frost will soon appear and leaves will drop from sight. Lanterns are shining brightly, shining through long, dark nights, brightly. Autumn, the time of harvest, fill us with inner light. It is if, it is as if the children are preparing to harvest the light in their lanterns, and indeed they are. Yet, it is more than the little candles that will flicker in their lanterns. It is the light that shines in their eyes. It is the light that shines with warmth from their hearts as they band together to face the dark. Coats are bundled and mitten hands hold both lantern and mother's hand or father's hand or, bravely, stepping out solo to follow the winding line of light glimmering into the night. They follow the light. One year, there was a great pinon pine on campus that had succumbed to bark beetle. This pinon tree had been healthy, large, and spreading, and abundant. The children had gathered more pine nuts from this tree than any other, but it had been stricken, and now its branches were bare, all needles dropped, only still reaching upward to the sky. The procession of the children, parents, and teachers curved through the field, singing their songs, lanterns swinging. As we approached the tree, almost instinctively, the group circled the tree. As we sang a song, one of the fathers stepped forth and lifted his lantern into the branches of the tree. It hung there like a star. Without a word, Others followed suit, and soon the tree sparkled with the beauty of dozens of lanterns. There was magic. There is magic. Light in the darkness warms hearts. Spread light. Share your light. Thank you, Carl. Thank you, Carl. Well, it's been so nice to have this conversation with you, too. Yeah. Yeah, thank you so much for being here. It's, it's um, you know, years and years and years of wisdom accumulated. And it's really amazing to benefit from it. And, and I can't wait to share this with those listening. Well, it's a wonderful conversation. It's wonderful to see you both. And I know that uh, you both have had your own journey as Waldorf graduates, but also as Waldorf educators. And you've given a lot of your life and enthusiasm for the young people you've worked with. And so I really honor that. And um, 
you know, I think that in in this year, 2023, in this post-COVID time, it's it is it's so important that we keep the connections and we support each other, and that we find ways to to um, support the children who are coming up into this rapidly changing time that we're in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As I work with many schools, I'm just seeing a lot of the young people, especially the middle schoolers, the high schools, are, are really struggling. And I think that experiences like in the festivals or in the arts or in performances, those are the aspects of building towards a more human future that we need to keep true to. Mm-hmm. And to keep our sights on on what is a true education that's supporting the full and healthy development of the children mm-hmm. so they might become all that they can become as they yeah. step towards their their own lives as young yeah. adults yeah absolutely yeah all right all right thank you very much thank you thank you This concludes another episode of Hard Beeswax. Thanks for listening. For episodes and more, visit our website at hardbeeswax.transistor.fm. Find us on Facebook and Instagram, or you can always email us at hardbeeswax at gmail.com. Hard Beeswax would not be possible without the expertise and time of Andy Smith, our producer and sound whisperer, who has been our hype man from the beginning. And lastly, thanks to you, our listeners, for tuning in with us and sharing in the absolute magic brought by our guests. Your support means the world to us. You have our utmost gratitude.